if this if this company wants some advertising for their beer, they better pay us. Otherwise, I'm not turning the label around. And if any of those people out there make fun of me for drinking cheap, watery American beer, they can go fuck themselves because I like cheap, watery American beer. You're not alone in that. I mean, I'm not with you. You guys froze out. <laughs> people obviously buy it, though. Welcome back to the Future's Edge podcast. I'm Jim Urio. As always, we have co-host and brains behind the operation, Bob Iaccino. And today we have, again, capital partner, John Kildoff, also CNBC contributor and the author, editor of Kildoff Report. Thank you uh, for coming on, John. We appreciate it very much. It is absolutely my pleasure. This is a real treat for me. Thank you. So if you walk up, you walk up to a bar, doesn't have beer or wine, what's your go-to drink? Mm. Since I can't chase down the uh, the JMO with the with the Bud, then Budweiser, I would, yeah, I, I I would go with a, a beef eater on the rocks with a twist of lemon. Beef eater, that is a nice call, Bobby. What's yours if you're going for a mixed drink? Is it just going to be a bourbon? No, I mean usually it'll just be a bourbon, maybe a splash of water if I'm feeling like I might, uh, well, like depleted. But here's the funny thing: so John grew up in a time, and we're all about the same age, but grew up in a time where where the point of drinking was to get drunk it wasn't <laughs> flavor right indeed so i make fun of people all the time and i'm not doing this to you john it may sound like i am probably because i am but people will say <laughs> they like jameson's but they chase it so that again shows that your your goal you have a goal and it's not flavor i i resemble that remark as well <laughs> Are you Irish? Killed off is an Irish name, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Okay. We get to the center of the shrubbery maze. That's <laughs> <We're just laughs> right. We solved all the problems there. Let's, <laughs> let's many times. Let's yeah. Let's talk about market. Oil is uh, your specialty. I was just on um, with Scott Shelley on uh, the Cow Guy Show. We talked about the releasing of the SPR that's going on right now, down to levels not seen since what 1985 ish. Um, uh, to me, again. On this show, by the way, we, we don't we call out anybody we want. We don't we don't give two shits about if someone wants to sponsor us, wants to not sponsor us. We are not going to have a show where we don't call out people when they're being stupid. Is this a stupid decision that's being made into a market that it had turned, you know, based on probably market position and some demand destruction? Why are they selling SPR now? Is it a big deal and could it come back to bite us bad? Is he he's either frozen or taking a hell of a long time to think about it? <laughs> I think he's frozen again, but uh, I don't know if he can hear us or not, but I'll actually take that. I just mm -hmm. actually just wrote a piece for that for open markets, uh, CME open markets, and they're not sponsoring us either. So I shouldn't be telling them about this, but um, literally on one, some of the problems with the release of the SPR, number one to me being, and hopefully John could hear this because I, I really want his opinion on it. Number one, the SPR was, was developed as a national security measure, national energy security not because the current administration, whether it be Bush, Clinton, Trump, I don't care, Biden, not because they don't like the price, right? And we did lose John, so he'll be back on here. But it's not, you know, it's been used in times of hurricane. And I would agree that even that's a bit of a stretch. 
um, because you know hurricanes are generally shutdowns. If there was damage that couldn't be replaced, okay. You know, if there was some maintenance that had to take place, okay. But if it's just like, hey, we had a little bit of a hurricane, so I, I actually believe Trump did this. Uh, don't quote me because I'm not positive. But if there's a hurricane, it's all of a sudden prices spike 25 cents uh, at the pump, which is a lot. Um, they release some SBR in order to, you know, fend off the bad weather. And I just think this particular case, this is a situation where the SPR release was because we have midterms coming up and he didn't want the price of fuel where it was. That's now, that's what it seemed like to me, certainly. But what's the worst that could happen? This is going to still go to Bobby. And then, John, you know what the question is we're talking about, right? Yes, I do. Yes, so, Bobby, you go first. What's the worst that could happen? How bad could it bite us? Well, I mean, the worst thing that could happen is, you know, at the end of this next release, which goes through the fall, we're going to be down about 434 million barrels, uh, which is only about 30 days of supply or so. And the worst thing that could happen is an oil embargo. I mean, we're not in a position for that to happen, but certainly things can flare up in the Middle East. And you can't, uh, contrary to what a lot of people said back in 2016, 15, oh, they'll just turn the shale rigs back on. It doesn't physically work that way, number one. Uh, number two, if there's an actual real disruption for national security reasons, we're very limited. And you're not going to be able to, to kind of ease that much at all. And then lastly, it now has to be refilled. So they're actually, they've solicited bids already for lower prices in the future. We don't know what those bids are going to look like, uh, but those prices will be locked in wherever they're at. And you're theoretically putting in sort of a floor, an artificial floor in crude oil in the future, because there's a buyer that needs to buy somewhere in the range of 200 to 400 million barrels. John, what, what do you add to that? The question, I guess, when, when you were gone is, is it appropriate? It, it seems, you know, I, I assume you're going to answer no, it's not appropriate right now with the oil in the 80s, but what's the worst that could happen? Okay. Well, first of all, I thought in the beginning it was it was in fact appropriate, um, and I'll tell you guys that uh, this is going to you know I may surprise you with this. I've always been a full throated advocate for aggressively using the SPR to push back against these Middle East cartel people who keep trying to stick it to us every time they, they turn around or have the opportunity. Um, look, <clears throat> the market went nuts when Russia invaded Ukraine, right? I mean. WTI went to 130. You have some of the Cracker Jacks over there at Goldman and these other places calling for 130, 150, 180, 200. Pick your number. It got crazy. <clears throat> so this, this release actually helped um, much more so than I think people gave credit for in the beginning. I mean, look, Jim, there were weeks where um, the 8 million barrels or so uh, and Bob that we got out of the SPR covered what would have been uh, a, a very large commercial inventory drawdown, uh, if you looked at the numbers. So, um, and also too, with this, this, some of this SPR oil actually got exported. So that helped the international market as the Europeans are trying to turn away to the extent they can or needed to uh, from Russia. Now I'll say this, right now, this thing should end uh, because we, did, we, still, we haven't lost a meaningful amount of Russian crude oil. That was one of the biggest miscalculations of some of the investment banks. And you know, it was one of the things where I thought it, it could happen, but I was keeping my fingers crossed that it wouldn't. And you guys have been around these markets uh, you know, a long time as well. You know when that panic sets in, when, when, when people are, are uh, you know, rushing uh, to buy and, and really talk up uh, a position or, 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 or an ongoing acute event, 
you know, it gets carried away with itself until the dust settles. And that's what so, we're looking at right now. The dust is settling and, and we're hanging in there. We've been lucky. Okay, so by the way, we like when people come on and disagree with us at all, which is, it's such a bullshit thing that everybody goes in some echo chamber and knocks things back and forth. Will you, so you, it sounds like you are agreeing that it's either not appropriate right now or far, far less appropriate than it was. If the answer to that is yes, then what's the worst that can happen if it continues far longer than it should? We don't want to get caught behind the, uh, the eight ball uh, in terms of having no strategic petroleum reserve to tap, as, as Bob just alluded to. Um, however, we could also, too, just eliminate to a degree exports of our crude oil. Uh, we've been a massive crude oil, massive refined product uh, exporter. But uh, also, too, I would point out, I, I understand the program to work a little differently, uh, Bob. You know, if you take oil out of the SDR, you're not paying for it and you got to replace it down the road. So it's really a windfall for say ExxonMobil and some of the other big companies that have tapped this thing. They're getting free oil now in a $100 barrel zone. Uh, and if they were smart and they locked in the back of the curve, which is still down around $74, what a mighty spread they've just picked up. So, but you are right about supporting the price in the back of the curve because of that, that demand that's definitely coming and it will have to get uh, replaced. But look, so, go ahead. But I was going to say, when, when, we, when we have to replace it, and we, we all agree that we have to replace it, you do run the risk of uh, you know, a, a time where the price of oil is going higher and you exacerbate a higher move by doing so, correct? Yes. My understanding is, Jim, that part of taking barrels under this program is that you, you, you the company that took them, company A, company A has to come up and return those barrels down the road. So okay. it will be uh, replaced and replenished, no doubt about it. So let's move on to um, natural gas and LNG and, and the situation that's happening in Europe. How do you feel that that's, well, first of all, I do want to come back and get like a, a kind of a market type prediction on crude on how you think the next two months are going to play out, particularly when they stop selling the SPR and then we'll move on natural gas. So let's do that first. So what's, what's your price targets on crude? Where do you think it's going? Where do you think it'll be? I think we're going to continue to uh, staircase lower uh, over the course of the next six to eight weeks, let's call it. And I'll give you a longer term projection in a second. Um, so I do think we'll break 80, uh, probably into the end of October for a time. But then all the fears about what's gonna happen with the European winter uh, are gonna set in and grip this market. Uh, because like we see in the run up to the uh, driving season, like we saw earlier this year, although of course it was compounded by the uh, invasion of Ukraine, uh, we typically get the run up beforehand and then a sell-off afterwards, once we can again sort out, let the dust settle and see that we are in fact adequately supplied, not oversupplied, not terrifically supplied, but adequately supplied. But the pressure we have this year, and I think that's why we'll rebound as we get into the, into the end of December, into the first quarter of next year, back towards 90 to 100, because the diesel situation is quite acute right now. Uh, we did not replenish those inventories uh, ahead of the harvest Ah, crap, I was loving that, uh, that answer too. But Bobby, I'm going to go to you then. So mm -hmm. the natural gas situation, um, particularly in Europe, going through the roof, how do you see that playing out? Do you think we're going to begin shipping LNG there? Well, it's difficult to do that right now, simply because we, we had one refinery, LNG refinery, actually go on offline and we're hurting for LNG capacity. Um, the refinery that went offline 
uh, due to actually uh, just an internal explosion, right? It was just some damage to the refinery and it needs to be repaired. And at the time that it happened, and I haven't looked up if there's any scheduling to fix it or not, at the time that it happened, um, they were talking about eight to 12 months. So the capacity to refine it, to turn it into liquefied natural gas is very limited. Um, also, there was actually some proposals politically, uh, don't quote me on who it was because I don't remember, where they basically said that they were going to make sure that U.S. demand was taken care of before they sent any uh, LNG overseas, simply because the price was so much better over there. So, you know, John mentioned spreads in the crude oil market, the natural gas prices to send LNG there and actually convert it to liquid, send it there and sell it. The margins were just massive considering where the prices had gone in Europe, which is kind of the way a market's supposed to work, right? This way, the, the extreme uh, rise in price that happened over in Europe and the UK could have been spread across the globe and maybe ease their pain a little bit, but we're just hurting for refinery capacity. So I don't know how much more can be done at this stage in the short term. So John, when you see some of the things that have happened in Europe, some things that have happened here, do you point fingers at government policies that try to switch us to green energy before we are ready for that? Do you think that's a genuine risk? Oh, 100%. Uh, I, I will say that I think there's an over-criticism of the Biden administration and their policy towards drillers, however. But because uh, look, the, the price crash two years ago wrecked the industry. I don't care who was president. I don't care who was Pope, okay? These guys weren't putting sticks in the ground again uh, for a while until things, you know, they were sure so they could see the whites of the recovery's eyes. But again, the administration's attitude and signaling doesn't help, let's put it that way. But um, for sure, Jim, I, this is the analogy I use. Here in the New York, New York City area where I live, <clears throat> we, we replaced uh, a bridge north of the city called the Tappan Zee Bridge. Um, and you I think know, us Chicago guys don't know shit, right? It's like, it's there's this place called New York. It's this magical city. Right? And I don't know. I just don't know. Well, it's, it's, it's like upstate, even though it's like 20 miles from New York City. People right, we went to the Tappan Bridge, Jack. Yes, go on, right? <laughs> but um, but we, we didn't close down or remove the old bridge until the new one was opened. All right? So, yeah, we can't be going Bingo. nuts with green energy and, and all the rest of it without taking care of business on the home front and, and still using all our traditional sources. I mean, we are Governor Cuomo shut down the Indian Point nuclear power plant here. We lost a huge chunk of supply from that, that you know, with, with no replacement. And the thing we need, I think everybody knows this by now, is that we can have all the solar panels and wind you know, machines out there that you, that you can get. You need a big battery overlay to store, this, to store the energy because um, that's what gets you through. I might point to your car, right? You know, so one thing great about the gas car is that this full tank of gas, that thing's ready to go on demand and you know how far you're gonna get. This, this intermittency with, with solar and wind is proven to be a, a real problem because it's funny. I've seen days in the UK, for example, wind is 100% supply and the electricity. That's great until, there's, until it's like zero. Same thing in Texas. There are days when the wind whips down there and most of the grid is supplied with wind power until it goes down to like zero. So what, so what are the, the, it's a storing capacity issue then, right? With the renewable stuff and we don't have the storing capacity. So you need it right then, right? To me, it is absolutely. We need a big battery overlay. If I was like, you know, you know, 
to wave a magic wand and say, how do you fix this thing? It's a big battery overlay, which we just don't have the capacity for either at this point. But does, is nuclear, and Bobby, after this, I want you to come in on this too, because energy is more your thing than me. Um, is nuclear the, like everyone who I talk to who seems to have their uh, thumb on the pulse of this says nuclear is the real answer. Is nuclear the real answer? It's a huge part of the electricity answer. There's, there's no two ways about it. And you know, it got such a bad rap. I mean, it's so scary to people for starters, but Three Mile Island, that was one thing. Then the Fukushima plant, this is something that drives me crazy, that, that disaster. There wasn't, you mean when they were planning that thing and building that thing, there wasn't one single brave soul who sat in one of the planning design meetings and said, hey, you know the, uh, the backup generators outside? Just drawing it out there. Do you think we're at risk because of the earthquakes? And, and since they generate tsunamis, that that would be taken out? I mean, there wasn't one single brave soul. God almighty. Thought about yeah. that? You know, because unbelievable. That, that ruined that ruined the nuclear industry, not just in Japan, but that's why Germany and Europe shut down so many of their plants, pointing to Fukushima. And, and Bobby, I swear I told you I was going to let you, but I have one more thing too. The psychology appears to be changing. Do you think it's changing fast enough to have a material impact over the next 10 years, 15 years? Do you think new nuclear plants will actually be built or at least old ones being brought back online or however that works? I think first, hopefully we'll get some extended that deserve to be extended. And yeah, I, I you know what's gonna drive that, Jimmy, is, is, is the, the, the extent of the brutalness of the winter in Europe this year. If they this, have a brutal winter, it's yeah. gonna to be totally, totally a popular idea. God, it's so funny, because you know, Bobby and I, when we talk on these shows, you know, we're always, we have fun talking about this stuff, but as soon as that topic of Europe comes up and what they're facing ahead of us, that is terrifying to me. Uh, and again, I, you can, I can point all the fingers and say these mistakes were made, but that's a, a terrible thing and my heart goes out then. Bobby, what do you got? Yeah, so I wanna go back if we could, John, because I, number one, I agree that administrations, whether it's Biden's, whether it's Trump, whether it's Obama, whether it's Bush, got too much credit and too much blame. Um, they're almost, they're not even like a quarterback of the economy in my view. They're more like a, a middle reliever of the economy where they come in, they do what they can do. And the rest is really up to the rest of the team and the starter and the reliever. But I think the, the point I'd love to see you expand more upon is, and you're not gonna be able to put a number on this, but how bad do you think the rhetoric was and to get us where we were? I mean, if you go October, 2020 to October, 2021, price of crude oil was up 111%. And I think if we go to October 2021, maybe you started to see troop buildups from Russia going into Ukraine in the news. And clearly, when we spiked up to 13040, that was ridiculous. And Goldman said $200 a barrel after that happened. I mean, that was just insanity. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm looking back at campaign speeches and I just thought, Okay, number one, no more subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, no drilling on federal lands, no more drilling, including offshore, no ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period, ends. How much are things like that? And that, that's obviously continued. You know, there's Wall Street Journal wrote an article um, just a couple of days ago um, about how you have to go back to Truman to find this few leases uh, in the first 19 months of a presidency. Now, we can agree that some of the leases are crap. We all know that, right? Sometimes they're just kind of releasing old land where the lease expired. Um, how much, if you were to put just a bullshit number on it, 
How much do you think the rhetoric hurt in getting up off the deck for those crude oil companies and saying, okay, we got hit hard, but you know, let's go at it. Things are back up. I don't think they would have done it at $43, which is where we are October 2021. No, I think that's right. Um, I think we certainly would have been back by now to uh, record production, which we're not. We're still, depending on which, which EIA you know, number you want to use, the monthly number we're at 11.5, the weekly number we're at 12.1. You know, we, we should be at 13 and a 0.5 by an hour, would have been pushing 14 if there was, if there was more of a, an encouraging uh, administration, that's for sure. It was unbelievable to me how they were tripping over themselves to shut down the fossil fuel industry, uh, considering you know, how important it is to us. I mean, because we're still ways away from, you know, having a, a mass adoption of electric vehicles. And certainly I, I'm yet to see an airplane that can fly, you know, on, on electricity purely yet. Um, so, but, um, but again, I will tell you that uh, that minus $40 print for WTI hurt, hurt Bobby. Yeah, I, I, sure. I, I don't think you can really take it. There was so much consolidation uh, in the industry. There were, you know, the bankruptcies that ensued. The big guys swooped in, Exxon Mobil, Chevron, and, and some of the other folks, Oxy, right? Um, you know, so that, and they exhibited discipline because, you know, they, they're the ones who really got the message from the administration that they weren't necessarily in favor and are still being hound, hounded to a degree. But they're moving forward, you know, at a typical Exxon Mobil glacial pace, but moving forward. And they do have plans actually to expand production uh, by about 20%. So I think, I think thankfully, um, if you will, uh, this, this energy crisis that we're in the midst of right now, I think, you know, set a lot of wagons straight in terms of what the reality is of moving forward on this. And we dodged a bullet uh, because if we had gone hog wild right out of the gate uh, in, in early 2021 uh, and, really, and they really did move uh, to aggressively, um, you know, sh shut it down, if you will, or, or curtail it we'd have a hell of a problem on our hands. And, and thankfully we don't. And I think that's thankfully because, you know, we got Biden, who's a middle of the road, you know, kind of deal cutter guy who has to flirt with the left, I think more than he probably would like to. Uh, and so we're keeping on, keeping on. So oh, I, I, just I, as, I I'm sorry, Jimmy, as a follow-up to that, we're, we're recording on Friday at uh, four Eastern time. And I, I haven't honestly looked at the markets in a few minutes, but how much of... It's an interesting move today in equities and, and honestly, in just general risk assets, right? So do yes. you attribute that sort of continued move down in the fuel sector as being enough to kind of say, okay, we could actually get back to buying what we think we should buy. I mean, the, the breadth is big today. Every sector is up. Um, copper, two-day rally going on behind it. Crude oil, couple-day rally. Do you think that the energy price fall is enough? I mean, we had the ECB estimates of inflation and their estimates, granted a different economy, but their estimates were 8% this year, over 5% next year, 2.1% two years from now. So how do you feel about like given today's move and what's going on with energy with the consistent drop, especially at the pump? I, I think it's, it's, it's popping up on a lot of uh, screens, radars as a delicious uh, risk reward long play at this point, because, you know, as much as I just talked about, you know, some of the internal issues, uh, you know, with the markets and things, um, the vulnerabilities abound. And, and I don't want to underestimate that. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing holding this market back in a big way, which I think is, is, is a tougher calculus right now, 
uh, is China uh, because you know there is they are as important to the demand side uh, of the oil price equation as Saudi Arabia is to the supply side. I would argue. So, um, but in terms of the breath, you know, I was thinking about that, you know, all the crying during August about the breath and everything and, and the loss of open interest, um, you know, it's August, it's summer, you know, here we are September, like you just pointed out, volumes are good, risk appetites coming back, uh, things are, things are, you know, looking a little different, the dollar backed off, uh, that rally in the dollar was also a big uh, downward yeah. pressure on, on commodity prices, as you guys both well know. So, um, yeah, I, I think potentially uh, this this is a good time uh, to get in. You might take some more pain, as I talked about, into the next few weeks. But I think, man, that the fundamental setup does favor a rebound of some significance into the into the start of winter. For oil. Do you and, think and here, do you guys think this is for both of you, really? Do you think the situation between Russia and Ukraine? Um, is there a resolution that's going to happen in the next few months, John? You go first on that. You think so? I do. Well, first of all, Ukraine's starting to kick their ass. Um, you saw some of the well, reporting over and overnight. Uh, there was a big sort of blitzkrieg by the Ukrainians against the Russians. Um, and, you know, they're getting squeezed. The Russian economy's getting squeezed. I wish more, like this energy price cap you're talking about, they should shut down the Russian visas to all these European countries. Lock those people in Russia with nothing to spend their money on. Let's, let's see how long Putin hangs in there uh, with that kind of pressure uh, and that kind of deteriorating economy. So I do. I think he's on the ropes. I think Russia's on the ropes. And I, I think that uh, Q1, by Q1 of next year, this thing could be wrapped up, especially if the Ukrainians keep going like they're going. Bobby, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with John entirely. It, it seems to me like a resolution has to come, but I worry because, um, I mean, if you want to talk about world leaders in our times that had the capability of doing something drastic, I think Vladimir Putin clearly falls in that category. And that worries me. Like, I don't think he's going to heave a nuclear bomb into Kiev or anything, but I mean, he could just do something so drastic that the whole situation turns upside down. And that to me, is a really dark black swan for us in markets, just kind of in general. But if it continues to go as a as a mostly conventional war like this, yeah, I, I think that's part of today's rally. And it's interesting because the rally overall today to me, Jimmy, feels different than the last one. So I'm on record multiple times as saying, I don't think the June lows are the lows. Part of it is because stagflation is one of the periods of time where recessions don't actually result in higher equity markets. Otherwise, normally recessions year out, markets are higher, right? And I'm not even saying we're in a recession. We don't know that yet. So from that perspective, today feels different. The last couple of days feel different. Now, in my time in trading on the trading floor, whenever I was going up a feel, I was wrong. <laughs> so I'm going to wait until, until our, our formulas and our price action tells us what to do. But today feels different. I think a part of it may be what John said, that it seems like that situation might be turning for the global good. I agree. I was just going to say that's a great point, Bobby, because when, we, when we've had sort of Russian successes in this theater of war, uh, the markets did sell off. So yeah. the equity sold off and, and crude rose. So um, that's a great point. But I can back up your feeling with some genuine technical analysis. I mean, that 3,900 level, you, our analyst, Mike Arnold, I don't know if you've watched our podcast before, John, with him on it. He's brilliant. Yeah. And 3,900 yeah. level was a very, very distinct line in the sand. It was the 0. 0.618, 0. 0.625 is what he likes for retracement. And it held. And it held like a champ. And it bounced off that pretty well. At the same time, it seemed like there was a feel change 
in Europe. Like a lot of the bad had been priced in. Like now all of a sudden the market's starting to consider that maybe things will start to get resolved. So I actually, and I have, have been on record saying, I think the June lows were the lows. Mm -hmm. I have also been on record that I think the pet, the Fed moves closer to neutral. I said end of September, and I'm, I'm walking that back and saying I was wrong, Bobby, before you scream at me. But by the middle of October, I think they will they will start talking about neutral. John, do you have any comments on that? I, I agree with you. I think I, I, I hope they will, Jim, because uh, I don't understand why people aren't talking as much about uh, the, the, the Fed's hammering. It's the, all the central banks are, are hammering down. But also the U.S. fiscal spend has really cratered. Um, you know, I know the Biden likes to try to likes to take credit for this, but we, you know, 1.7 trillion dollar less deficit. I mean, thank goodness. But that's a hell of a lot of money too that's coming out of the economy that's not getting spent. And that to me, and to me, that was the bigger part of the inflation problem. And I say this because how long, how many years do we sit there and watch the Fed, you know, do QE, do negative interest rates, or try to or at least keep them near zero? pay for reserves, and they couldn't move the needle on inflation. But man, you came along with uh, with the Trump tax cuts, the, the Trump COVID bill, and then the Biden bill, and then these others. Uh, forget it. Uh, the spending exploded. In the M2 exploded. And I think that has a lot to do with it. And, I, and I'm hoping that now they see how the M2 has come some, so far back down that uh, the Fed will, you know, take it easy on us, which I- I appreciate that you, like we sometimes- um, tend to blame one side. We blame we blame everybody pretty good, but I like the fact that you're yeah, drawing we hate back everybody, to the middle. John, just so we you hate know. everybody. We hate everybody. <laughs> but you, you're, you're pointing Excellent. fingers both ways and blaming everybody. I like that a lot too. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned um, electric vehicles. I know Bobby has some opinions on this. We'll start with you. Are they really the answer? It seems to me I've heard, I just get, keep getting barrage with messages from both ways about the costs to build them and the rare earth metals and the mining and the environmental disasters and building them, then coupled, um, juxtaposed against, you know, they're clean burning once they're alive. Are they really the answer, John? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's puzzling to me to a degree, to be honest with you. Um, the rare earths, the mining of, of that stuff is, is not pretty. It's right up there with blood diamonds, if you, if you ask me. Um, you know, the, the handling that waste when their useful life is over is, is a big problem. I saw a report, now this is anecdotal, but the, but the solar panels out in California now and the waste and the, and the landfills are starting to pollute the water. Reminds me of MTBE um, and the problems we had with that back in the day. So oh, what's MTBE? I forgot. Oh, sorry. Before they put ethanol in the gas, they put methanol in the gas. But oh, yeah, yeah. I do remember now. Yeah. And, we, and, and it polluted and it was, it's unbelievably soluble. And so, you know, the gas stations didn't have the greatest of tanks back then. And once it got into the ground, it just ran and found its way to, to water. There, there was a map in the United States that looked like the, the Republican congressional uh, or, you know, map of, of wins when, when Trump won last time. It was just all red. I just never forgot it. We had to get rid of it, unfortunately, because it's a great fuel, huge octane booster. Um, but it's unfortunate that it had to go. But that's what this that's what the EVs sort of uh, remind me of. Um, so especially if you're having to uh, power them up with, uh, you know, electricity that's coming from a coal plant. I mean, what, what are we doing? So at least if we can uh, substitute a nuclear plant in that, that would be cleaner. Bobby, you have thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's been plenty of research done that shows that hybrids is definitely the way to go, not only in the efficiency and the transition that John talked about with there. There's a couple of bridges in New York. I wasn't aware of that, but with the bridge, you know, where the transition again. Right. Yeah. Where the transition is actually the most important thing. And you can actually get affordable hybrids out to more people, which will overall cut net carbon emissions by quite a bit more than these uh, limited production, sometimes way too expensive cars that need subsidies to be afforded. That's number one. Number two, I have a personal preference. I mean, I own a Mustang with a pretty large V8 in it and I like the sound and I like the feel and yeah, I, I'm, I'm that guy, you're, unfortunately. You're a Dago is what you are. I you know. were just born I, to be a Reagan Italians, if I could find an electric blue IROC Z, I'd buy it today. Bam. Um, but, <laughs> You know, from that perspective, I have a personal preference, and I just don't like any situation, any administration from any party telling me this is what you have to do. You have to do this. I always go back to cigarettes where, you know, when I was a kid, I was one of the few people that didn't smoke. And then they just started coming out with information as to why you shouldn't. And all of a sudden, smoking fell off a cliff, right? And and the information, I think, is important. And, And John brings up a good point about the rare earth minerals and the disposal. I think there's a little bit of dishonesty from the anti-green movement because every time I've seen them talk about, you know, it takes X amount of, of carbon to create this car in the first place. They're only comparing it to the carbon car that's already made and on the road. They're not comparing it to the steel that has to be smelted to make the carbon car as well. It's, it's, it's a little bit of apples and Fuji apples as opposed to just a direct comparison of apples to apples. But I don't think all electric cars is a solution. Um, I don't honestly have one. I ride my bicycle a lot, but that's only been able to be a way that I transport myself 90% of the time since I moved to Florida. That Because now I can do it 99% of the year. So there's just a lot of realities. Sure. Well, before, 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 that's why we're in the early stages, and that's why we got to be careful about the transition and just, you know, take it a pace and not go you know, yeah. whole hog into and put all our chips on any one of these technologies. Hydrogen fuel cells is another potential uh, way to go for us is for, for motor transportation as well. That just doesn't get enough attention. So, John, let's go to the metals market for a second. If you want to pass on this, that's fine, because I know Bobby has some thoughts on this as well, too. When you think of the bill that was passed, which is the Green New Deal that was watered down, and we're clearly moving in a direction that the three of us not sure is the right direction with the EVs. But what, you know, silver goes in uh, solar panels, copper, crap ton of copper goes into EVs. And those things have been pounded, maybe because of the strong dollar, um, do you look at any of those markets and think that there's opportunity there coming forward? And by the way, there's a, a, a ulterior motive as I always have. In a couple of weeks, I'm giving a speech in the New Orleans Investment Conference about metals of the Green New Deal. So I do like to pick smart people's brains before I do it. Go. Yeah, yeah I, do, I, I certainly think that, you know, you got to play copper from the long side for sure. Uh, it's, it's in demand for any number of reasons. Again, China weakness right now is holding it back. It has the same kind of opportunity set to the upside. You could argue that crude oil does for its various reasons, uh, particularly if China does start to rebound and come back. But that's copper's a huge part of obviously moving that electricity around, whether it's in cars or, or smarter grids or smarter buildings. So yeah, and and silver too. You know, stepchild to gold as we know over the years, poor man sort of a bullion. But uh, yeah, I think the you know, the call on it will only go up, especially with the incentives 
like you just mentioned, you know, from the uh, from the in Inflation Reduction Act and the encouragement uh, to build and, and get us into an electric car future. So yes, absolutely. Both of those you got to play from the lawn side. And Bobby, you you agree with that as well. And silver, yeah. when you look at silver and platinum, palladium, like silver particularly, like what percentage of a press is it a precious? What percentage is it an industrial? What are your thoughts on it? I'd call it 60% precious, 40% industrial. John mentioned it's the stepchild to gold. It's also the stepchild to copper, right? Doesn't, doesn't conduct electricity as well as, as copper does, although it is used in quite a bit. Um, it, it's interesting, Jim. You remember last week I said I wanted to buy copper, but I didn't, I didn't buy it, full disclosure. It's up 4% this week. And I didn't have uh, a proper formation of a pattern that allows me to buy it within my active trading, but I wanted to buy it mainly because of what John says, that regardless of what happens at the midterms, um, there's some wheels that are in motion, that they're, they're, they're steamships, they're not speedboats, they're cruise liners that aren't just aren't going to turn. And copper is going to be a big part of a lot of these. I think there's probably a reckoning coming 10 years from now in terms of the mining situation, but we may feel it in our industry a lot quicker as people begin to realize how bad things can get when mining is when you it, when you rely on mining, which is also very environmentally damaging. Jimmy's daughter is an environmental scientist and you can ask her about that. It's like, you know, when you want to electrif uh, electrify the company and you, you don't want to damage the environment by mining, I'm not sure how you do it. But by the way, when you live sometimes with an environmental scientist and she's shipping off to Stanford for another degree next week, you don't have to ask them their opinion. On shit. <laughs> <laughs> they just tell you. I was, was going to say, how did you let that happen? <laughs> right, exactly. No, I, I'm, I believe scientists. that conservatives should be taking over the issue of conservation. It's right in the goddamn name. I like wetlands i like a clean environment i i'm i consider myself an early adopter environmentalist but i hope she didn't hear that she's living with me until she moves to stanford next week but anyway what's your congratulations you, congratulations yeah, thank you very much and what's your pick for the metal uh the metal thing of the next six months what's it do you think copper too i would go with copper absolutely yes yes yeah that's it's got the industrial too. case it's got this sort of um <clears throat> You know, risk reward because it's come down so much, uh, and and you're going to start to hear, I believe, uh, increasing concerns of what Bobby just raised about the sort of longer term outlook for it. So it's sort of like buy now, beat the rush. And what? You know, and, Jimmy, you know, we're about John, yeah, I'm not sure if you know this, but Jimmy owns a restaurant in the suburbs of Chicago, Branson Palatine. <laughs> I've heard of it. Yeah. I can't believe we haven't heard. mentioned it till now. Well, even though they don't cash sponsor us either, but you know, <laughs> to me, copper is a burger. Like you just have to, when you're looking for that one thing, it's, it's gotta be copper based on what John said. It's just, it's the tried and true. It's what they're going to go to. I believe really firmly in technology, by the way, that like, I think down the road, that's why a lot of these climate predictions over the last 30 years haven't come to pass. I don't suspect that the models were that bad. It seems at this point, like they were, but a lot of it has to do with technology and some of the, some of the advancements we've already made. And again, I am not, <laughs> I've been called a climate denier more than I've been called a supporter of climate change or a believer in climate change. And I'm not a denier in the change in the climate. I just don't want 
you know, and John, I'm positive you fall on the same page. I don't want this beautiful earth that everybody has died from famine and the earth is sitting here by itself. Oh, yeah, no, no, no doubt. And we've done a lot of great things. I mean, electricity, uh, conservation and efficiency gains have been huge over the past uh, two decades. Really something to be uh, to be proud of. And, you know, and also, too, in terms of, like you said, technology, cleaning up the water. Um, you know, like here in New York, I know out in Chicago too. I mean, we've had whales here in New York Harbor this past summer. So, I mean, you know, just that's how clean it's gotten. It's been the headline about the whales, John, though, that was a negative. The headline, the headline I saw in the New York Times was global warming forces whales or something like that. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing nothing to do with the clean water and all the bunker that we can't, we can't get get away from that they're, that they're enjoying. Right. No, of course, of course it's the climate. so, John, at this part of the show, like Bobby and I switch to talking about trades. And some of these are short-term trades, and some of these are actually you know, based on technical encounter to what the fundamental piece is. We'd love you to stay and tell us how much of idiots we are, this and that. But if you're not that interested in it, feel free to leave at any time. First one's going to be about two-year. Bobby, what's your trade on? I didn't read it. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. My crude is my crude. <laughs> so you know what it is now? My trade is actually- Yeah, I do is a crude oil short. Um, okay, good. So, so like John's going to actually like that, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, so, and I really like the pattern that's forming. Long, so longer term, and, and again, uh, John, since you're still here, uh, my business partner and sort of the show's official technical analyst who comes on every Friday, first Friday of every month, to um, discuss kind of looking forward and looking back. Uh, he, he talked about a double bottom, I'm sorry, a double top on a weekly crude oil chart a while back that broke and his target was in the mid sixties. And this was three, four weeks ago that he got medium to long-term bearish on crude oil. <clears throat> and I actually affected a short position off of that, covered it. And now I'm seeing another one, Jimmy, you'll know this based off of the rotation zone on the same chart. So uh, crude oil has come off and it's gone back up into Mike's rotation zone on a weekly chart. And I'm going ahead and Mike's going to get mad at me, but I'm jumping the gun and selling it because it's the first cross rotation zone. Now, Mike is not jumping the gun. He's going to go ahead and wait. But I already sold uh, crude oil. I sold it at 89.60. I've got to stop at 98.83. And my target price on this is actually 69.30. So it's a, it's a longer, I call it a medium term trade, right? I don't expect to hold it more than a couple of months. Um, going into the winter and in the summer driving season, short of some sort of OPEC just idiocy or some sort of geopolitical event, um, and then I'll get stopped out. That's fine. This trade risks about just under twelve hundred dollars, eleven ninety three, to make about seventeen sixty. So it's about one point four eight to one reward to risk. So I printed out the, uh, the daily crude chart before coming here today. Just so nice. Beautiful. You're and, high um, tech. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I got a flipboard too, Jimmy, if you want me to break it out. Yeah, I oh, love nice. it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, I think you're, I think it's, this is a good time to be putting that short on, Bobby. You got a couple of things going in your favor. Um, not, not only be, that we're in a decided downtrend with a, with a peak um, up around 120 and then down around, down around your 98 stop where there's a little, not a double top, but a double high, I'll call it, where we got two daily price bars sort of uh, standing up like the, like the old World Trade Center they're next to each other. Now, a little bit of little bit of a test of that downtrend from the past couple of days rebound off the low from earlier in the week, but you're still safe. And also, too, 
we got the 50 day crossing down over through down below the 200 day moving average. So you got a death cross going. So uh, and I got to compliment John on this, Jim, because he said it's not a double top, it's two tops. You know, over the last 29 years, I've spent so many hours trying to tell people that two tops is not a double top. There's actually a pattern. It has to be a reversal. It's not just two tops next to each other. So I, I think you've, you've convinced me of that over the last couple of years, and I appreciate that as well. That drives that me crazy way, too, Bobby. That drives me crazy too. drives me nuts, man. I don't love that we all three agree on this trade, by the way, but I, I agree with you. I think that... Um, I what we talked about earlier in the show, the fundamental thing, and John, to to you, I'm sure you probably know this already, but to our listeners too, Bobby and I both consider ourselves probably 65 to 70 percent technical traders, but we use fundamental analysis to buttress our technical positions, and so I like I, I definitely like fundamental analysis, and the fundamental analysis of this could be we could potentially see a resolution. We priced in a lot of bad um, for the conflict in Ukraine, and if that happens, I think. Uh, the bottom could, you know, conceivably drop out in the next couple of weeks. So I like this trade as well. Uh, let's move on to gold. So in, okay, so my, my trade is a long gold trade, but the short crude trade, I think they can coexist together, but I want your guys' opinions on this as well. Cause I've been looking, you know, metals markets have been obviously clobbered for a lot of different reasons. I think most of the reasons is the rates going higher, dollar going higher, I personally think we're, we're beginning to look at a time where the rate rises are going to be over. Um, gold, it, from, in, from 1970 to 1980, gold went from like 38 bucks to 450 bucks. 10 year went from about 7% to 12.5% the same time period. So gold can rally along with interest rates. Gold didn't like interest rates this time. That, I think back in the 70s, gold was like, yeah, we still need an inflation hedge because the Fed is so much behind the curve, whatever. I think gold getting clobbered this time was it kind of signaling that the Fed really is serious. They are going to, I'm not putting you to sleep, Bobby. I'm, if I am, I'm sorry. I'll get to the, I'll get to the trade in a second. I swear to God. Um, <laughs> that the Fed is genuinely going to take care of this. So I've been looking for a line in the sand in gold, and it seemed like 1700 was the line. So my trade is this. If gold trades above, hits to 1745. This is a stop in trade. A stop in there and with a target of 1815 and then a stop place back below 1690, which is under that line. So if you do it in the DS micro, that's a trade risks 550 bucks. You're stopped out at 1690 and it makes 700 bucks. If you get to your 815 level, John, you first, you like it, you hate it. I do. I do. I think because um, I think the dollar run may be over as the other central banks finally get the, their act together and step up and tighten the way we saw the ECB signal this week. Um, and let's the other shooter drop still is Japan. If they get into if they finally get into the tightening ball game, um, then the dollar will get hit again uh, because again you'll have a, a more balanced field here. Because right now we were the only game in town in terms of tightening aggressively that of course made the dollar more attractive and forced the hand of the other central banks to get going. So um, I do like it that way, and I do think that uh, you know you've heard as much as the dollar isn't trash. Or considered to be trash, we talked about the deficit spending has been so reduced, there's still a hell of a debt out there that's got to be paid and Social Security and things like that. You heard Chairman Powell say the fiscal path was, is still unsustainable. So that you got that spook factor you know, still coming into this market that'll push people into goals. That's why I do sort of like it. Bobby? I like it. Full disclosure, um, a couple of weeks ago, I sold gold at 1750 on this show. And my stop was 1830. 
and my target was 1611. The title of last week's show is Mike Arnold shows Bobby how he lost his discipline. And my discipline problem was I didn't go to a higher time frame to see if my target made sense and it didn't make sense. And he pointed that out to me in the podcast. So I moved my stop down to 1748. So um, it's contra to a position I have on, but I'm not, I'm going to lose pennies um, if I get stopped out right. of this. But one thing that's definitely going in your favor, Jimmy, that us commodities guys look at a lot is seasonality. Gold seasonality from about the middle of September to about the first week of August, it's the steepest period, the sharpest, uh, deepest move, like the fastest, longest move in seasonal tailwind happens right now. Now that obviously seasonality is not a trading strategy. I, I always have to throw that in because people will say, well, I'll just buy it every September. Doesn't work that way. But all else equal, that's a heck of a tailwind. So I, I'm going to say I like it and I'm likely to get stopped out the next few days. So full transparency, which we always do on this show, I'm probably about 70% that I will actually make this trade. If I don't make this trade, you guys all know why, because my and I've talked about silver, gold, platinum that I'm long up to my freaking eyeballs on. It's been one of my worst trades of the year, but I haven't got out of it because it was my kind of medium term investment. So if I don't do it, it's because I don't want to drown in the goddamn metals. But I think I will do it because I like the way this trade looks. Let's move one on. To I, can just add, I can just add one. I just wanted to add one more thing just to make it sort of yeah. interesting. And that seasonality that Bobby just referenced, that actually coincides with the uh, Indian wedding season. Yeah. Um, and I, I love didn't that presence. Physical demand. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't necessarily believe that. So I ran it down. And I also talked to Ed Morris over at City Group about this a couple of years ago, because he wrote a note about it and noted the Indian wedding season. And I said to him, are you pulling my leg with this? And he said, no, we looked into it. And it's a real thing. And it really drives the demand. So that's what's part of that seasonality, Bobby. It's not just the you know, figment yeah. of your imagination. So my, it's real. my older daughter is flying to Mumbai for a wedding uh, in a couple of weeks, too. Not the environmental scientist, the one who sells hamburgers. Bobby, what were you going to say? Yeah, just the last thing to, um, to John's point about the dollar weakness. Basically, every major currency except the yen um, turned positive on the week this week against the U.S. dollar. If you look at the future side of things, and many of them had these outside range days, which are not necessarily reliable reversal in terms of trading. You can't always get good risk reward on those things, uh, but they're pretty reliable, at least in short term reversals. He's outside and they were outside range weeks. So they're a little bit stronger. Uh, the yen had, one, I'm sorry, the yen didn't. The yen was still negative, although it recovered a little bit. But the pound had one, the Swiss had one, the Canadian dollar had one. So these majors are definitely going to put pressure on the dollar at least early next week. Yeah, and just the last thing on that before we move on to the two-year trade is the euro days ago, week ago, had a lot of reasons it seemed like to plunge way below parity, and it didn't. It seemed sticky there. That was one of the reasons I... Thought about this gold trade when it took took over the par, uh, parity again. Um, two year. So John, to catch you up on this, uh, in like four of the last four shows, I've been long the yield contract. So long yield the CME. You know, you trade it's inverse to the bond. So I'm I think yields are going. But when we were trading it two two ninety and two even lower than that, I didn't really have a thesis as to why. It just technically looked good. It's been one of the better trades I've had in a bit but I really had a very, very difficult time filling it in. My trade today is another technical trade on the two-year. It's buying the September two-year CME micro treasury contract at three spot five, five, where it was, uh, with a target of three spot nine, zero, and a stop placed below three spot three, five. 
Um, do you think two years, and again, I've said like four times this whole show, I think the Fed is moving to neutral in about a month's time. So it does pro- even seems you know, ironic to me that I'm talking about short end yields going higher still. Uh, John, can you get, oh, by the way, that trade, if it hits its target, makes 350 bucks. If it gets stopped out at 335, you lose 200 bucks. John, thoughts? And again, it's a bet on yields going higher still. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Powell has got to, you know, you know, make his stand here. Could be Custer's last stand for the guy, but he's making his stand here and he's driving these short-term rates higher, uh, whether we all like it or not, or whether it's justified or not. Because you're going to start to be able to argue that, as you just said. I think I'm with you in about a month's time, maybe a little longer. But yeah, there's there's more pain to come, to quote the man. So yes, uh, I think that's... Uh, yeah, but he, he means our pain, not necessarily his pain, but probably yeah, I guess right. that's... I, I guess that's what encapsulates it. Then I'm talking about the next three weeks to a month. So that can still fit in with my, because he'll talk tough right up until the point that he doesn't, right? Right. And he'll talk tough at the next meeting too, a couple of weeks. Yeah. Bobby, agree? Uh, so the only thing I like about this trade, contra to your thesis, okay, when we take your thesis about the Fed pausing uh, in the very near future is that you're doing it in the two year. So yeah, I agree with this particular trade. Even today, Bullard said market is underpricing higher for longer rates. Uh, Bullard, who has been like all of a sudden he became a messiah after you know kind of like a year and a half. That was about eighteen months ago, maybe when he started yeah, predicting the next. Couple no of skin moves. in the game anymore. Then, he right? reminds me of Abby Joseph Cohen, who's absolutely wonderful, sweetheart of a person, but she predicted one thing and just a whole career out of it. <laughs> Stocks go up. Yeah, now Bullard is just this. Orlean Garzarelli. Bullard's always right. Or Kathy Wood. All of them. Like, things <laughs> yeah. go so up. So I saw a funny statement this week that said, here's how you know the bottom is not in in stocks yet. They're still updating us on Kathy Wood. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, again, that. I have nothing but respect for anybody who, who has skin in the game. But I don't want to hear her opinion all the time because it's always the same opinion. And again, right. if someone is that is that leveraged up, and making those kind of returns, I want to stay away from them anyway. I like people who are a little more conservative. I'm, I'm sorry. I like my money. I think the Fed is serious. And I think people aren't taking them serious. That's why I think this is going to work. I don't know that it's the right move. But as a strategist, that's not my job. My yeah. job is to figure out what actually could happen and how markets might react and then try and trade that. So I also think uh, you know. she, uttered, she uttered the phrase, it doesn't make sense. And you know, you guys seen people on the floor and upstairs and things when they start saying they're looking at their portfolio and start screaming, it doesn't make sense. Uh, that's when you need a miracle. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. Right, I had to jump been, in there, Bobby, on that. <laughs> no, this has been a ton of fun. I'm going to take a nap and then go to the bar. What are you guys going to do? Are you going out tonight, John? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Going to get that, get that JMO chase now with a couple of bugs. <laughs> Get that JMO that you love the flavor of so much, Chase. Exactly. You can't. Thanks for thanks for making me, you know, putting that seed in my head. Now I'm going to think twice. Well, I'm not going to enjoy it as much. For the first hour. Comes, I'll, I'll throw this out there. This actually comes from me working in a bar when I was younger, watching all these. I'm not going to say which gender they were, but all these young idiots come in and go, "I love JMO. I love JMO. Can I have a shot of Jameson with a Coke back?" I'm like, "You don't love it." <laughs> I don't I'm going to drink a JMO tonight. Brands I just of decided. Brands of Palatine, owned by Jim Iorio. I don't get a burger at Brands of Palatine and chase it down with a slice of pizza. <laughs> but, uh, I'm, I'm going to have a Jameson, I swear to God. Yeah. It's more useful for the kicker, Bob. More <laughs> useful for go. the kicker, I guess. Well, you chase it with beer, I got to respect. <laughs> All right. 
So John, we, at this show, you know, like on any Zoom call, the thing that I've hated the most is like, nobody wants to be the first to hang up. So that with you guys. See ya. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> Thank you guys. My pleasure. It's awesome. A lot of fun. Thank you, John. Thanks, John.